It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm here today with Aaron Dorfman, the president of Lippmann Kampfer Foundation for Living Torah, as well as Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, features editor at The Forward. We're recording today's show on Tuesday morning, March 3rd. Today we'll be talking about American democracy and civics in the middle of a powerful election season, both for American Jews here in America, as well as watching what's taking place in Israel. Let me turn it over to Avital to frame our conversation. Jews have perhaps never been this visibly present on the national stage. Today, we're watching a competition between a Jewish billionaire and a Jewish socialist. Both, of course, evoke anti-Semitic stereotypes from extreme political groups, but both are largely facing opposition for the classes they represent, the ideologies they harbor, and not so much their Jewishness. What are you thinking about in terms of the Jewishness or the non-Jewishness of this moment? So isn't it kind of amazing that in this American Jewish moment where you have mainstream American Jewish presidential candidates that, A, you know, you alluded to the fact that there is some extreme hate, but it's actually not the news story. For most Americans, the fact of an American Jew running for president is not considered newsworthy. And B, it's kind of incredible that based on the polling that I've seen, the plurality of American Jews are not actually voting for either uh, in the primary. And we will see after the results, but the polling that I saw said American Jews are leaning Biden. So you see like a polarity within the Jewish community in terms of their feelings about Bloomberg and Sanders, but it's not like the Jewish community has decided to vote for, for the Jews. And that seems to tell a kind of a big story about American Jews right now politically. I mean, I think it goes a little bit to the title of the podcast, right? That identity is, for American Jews anyway, seems to be eroding as a determinant of kind of tribal affiliation political choices. One thing that I'm really thinking about these days is you're right. Jews are not necessarily voting for Sanders or Bloomberg because of their Jewish affiliations. But is that true on the other side of the political spectrum? When Trump was running, his Jewish connections, his Jewish family members were a big part of a selling point, I believe, for people who voted for him. So I don't know if it's true on the other side of the political spectrum. You think it was true that his Jewish grandchildren, basically, was a selling point in the Jewish community? Absolutely. I saw it very differently. I saw you had a Jewish community that wanted to vote for Donald Trump or was leaning Republican for all sorts of demographic, economic reasons. And his Jewishness essentially licensed what seemed like otherwise a strange decision. That's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. I thought having the Jewish son-in-law who will guide him in the right direction to support Israel, that was what I was hearing among many Republican Jews. This was a major incentive for people to vote for him. Was that an identity-based observation? I'm wondering, Yehuda, if, if it, what I'm hearing Avital mm-hmm. say is that that was an essential component of Trump's candidacy. I'm hearing you say that was an expressive 
overlay that authorized or legitimized an ideological affiliation or policy-based decision. Right. So if we go back to 2016, you had three finalists for the top office in the country, Trump, Clinton, Sanders. Anyone who wins has Jewish grandchildren somewhere in proximity of the Oval Office. So what that does is it neutralizes Jewishness as a politically expedient tool. You can't say this is the more Jewish candidate. People will do that, obviously. But it essentially invisibilizes Jewishness for the purposes of anti-Semitic accusations. I would read what happened as you have basically Jews vote Democrat, Jews vote Republican. That's always been the case, although Jews have overwhelmingly voted Democrat and still did in 2016. But what feels different is that Jewish Democrats and Jewish Republicans believe that there's kind of a greater Jewish sincerity to their side than before, as opposed to thinking about politics as instrumental. I vote for this party because it might ultimately be better for us. There's now a kind of sense of, no, this is the more Jewish party. And now that feels true equally for Jews who vote Democrat as it does for Jews who vote Republican. That's very true. But I also think that there's a way in which the legitimizing of a Jewish Republican candidate and a Jewish Democratic candidate or two Jewish Democratic candidates gives the lie to the fact that there's a Jewish interest, a single American Jewish agenda, right? I think what maybe 2016 showed is that there's a valid policy package that can appeal to right-leaning American Jews, and that's represented, you know, lucky for them by a candidate who is going to have Jewish grandchildren in the Oval Office, and there's a kind of a coherent Jewish package that represents the ideological orientation of left-leaning American Jews, and lucky for them, there was a candidate who was going to have Jewish grandchildren in the Oval Office who held that space also. So it, in some ways, erodes the notion that there's a shared American Jewish ideological agenda. In fact, it may be two at least. So let's move from two at least to maybe then in 2020, at least publicly four. There is a coherent American Jewish narrative around President Trump. It connects to his policies vis-a-vis Israel, a whole socioeconomic story, the whole way in which GOP aligns itself with things like family values, free market capitalism, the American Jewish community, etc. It's pretty clear that Senator Sanders has a certain base within the American Jewish community that views his policies as emanating from a particular expression of Jewish identity. It's pretty clear that Mayor Bloomberg has that too. We have to kind of unpack what that is. What's the Jewish interest in Bloomberg that is not Trump and very much not Sanders? And then you have the plurality of American Jews who are hanging out with Senator Biden or Senator Booker or Senator Harris or Senator Warren, all of these folks who probably could articulate some Jewish narrative or Jewish set of interests and values that those senators embody in spite of the fact that they don't have Jewish grandchildren. What might that be? I think Cory Booker, a good chance he will have Jewish grandchildren, just putting that out there. <laughs> I think I go back to the possibility that the Jewish grandchildren are, at this point, purely symbolic and instrumental. And in fact, what is happening is the articulation of multiple ideological value sets that correlate with positioning in the American electorate and the reverse engineering, perhaps, or invocation of Jewish tradition, Jewish perspectives to justify those values or to, or to inform those values. So let's see if we can go to a kind of a different level on this. So far, we talked about Jewish identities as related to interests. But the presidential candidates, including the incumbent president, seem to have also very different images of America which may correlate with different kind of self-understandings by Jews and Jewish communities about what role America is supposed to serve or what image is supposed to embody. How might we break down that story? So it's not just about our interests, but it's also a kind of smaller versions of collective imaginaries of what Jews in America think America should be and the ways in which our presidential candidates are carrying that forward. I wonder if that's a conversation that can bring us also into the conversation about 
the Israeli election, because I think that possibly what's happening is the emergence of an ethno-nationalist interpretation of what America could be or should be and what Israel could or should be, and what I'd call a liberal democratic vision that, that runs counter to it with the incumbent president here and the current prime minister of Israel representing that ethno-nationalist perspective and the left-leaning candidates here holding a liberal democratic perspective that Benny Gantz also represents in the Israeli context. And so the division isn't geographic. It's, I think, Yehuda, like you said, based on a different interpretation of what the nation state should be. Avital, I don't want to pigeonhole you, but you do hang around in the Orthodox community, so you probably have something of a window into the stories that are being told in the American Orthodox community about America. And I'm curious if you have insights from that community about both what President Trump represents and the voices that are increasingly dissident in the modern Orthodox community that are advocating for other candidates. It's not just a question of what are their Jewish interests in voting for these different candidates, but what stories about America do you see being played out in the American Orthodox community? I largely see, I would say, in the mainstream Orthodox community, in more right-leaning circles, you will see a certain alignment with Christian narratives about America, right? Uh, what Michael Oren writes about, you know, how America was this promised land, this whole parallel with Israel, with Jerusalem. There is almost a similarity there. There is, I think, deep patriotism in the Orthodox community that really has been galvanized by Trump, which is interesting to really observe because I never have seen this to this extent. In terms of dissidents in the Orthodox community, I'm not seeing so much of it, to be honest. You do see some sort of minority, marginal groups, but for the most part, I see a lot of people getting excited about Bloomberg. Uh, we can unpack that afterwards. And a lot of hatred of Sanders, a lot of fear of Sanders. And there's a big emphasis on Sanders in this community. I find that, you know, this is really the worst thing to happen to us. Uh, a lot of parallels with Corbyn, of course. Besides the Corbyn analogy, what else do you think is at stake? It's significant that you mark this as somewhat triggering in, in the Orthodox community. Sanders' candidacy is triggering, especially because of the amount of passion that has emerged from the Jewish progressive left about Sanders and the enthusiasm with which I think that community, the Jewish progressive left, have actually pushed Senator Sanders to do something he never did throughout his political career, which is to talk about his Jewishness as a way of perhaps enabling that community to feel a sense of the same type of passion that is motivating those who detest him. So what's going on Jewishly with the resistance there? So I think, unfortunately, whether one agrees with Sanders policies or tactics, what this opposition to him has essentially done is it's rendered all of the underlying sort of progressive values entirely trife in this community. So something that may have been 20, 30 years ago, and there's some interesting history on this, on things that were valid in the Orthodox community, like social welfare, those issues are less and less okay to support and talk about as values, as priorities for a community to support. And that's really troubling because that extremity from the Sanders camp has really forced the Orthodox community, for the most part, to move away from some of the important topics that this group is really trying to bring to the fore in the American discourse. I guess the question is, what comes first, right? Is it a resistance to the progressive values, and then I have a candidate who I don't like for all sorts of reasons, and they become code to justify that? Or is it, as you suggest, that the candidate is pushing people away from those kind of commitments? It's for sure the latter. You don't see the same sort of hatred of Warren, for example. And by the way, I also suspect that some of this is 
Bernie being a secular Jew, right? There's there's more discomfort with a secular Jew who is representing a certain set of values than a non-Jew. A non-Jew is, is, you know, not our problem. I'm wondering if that's a reflection of the personality cult branding of political candidates in this moment, right? Where they come to represent a whole package of things. And because we're increasingly uncomfortable with nuance, consider any dissonant component of their policy package trafing for their whole candidacy and all the things that they represent. You know, when, uh, when President Obama was dealing with the fallout of the Jeremiah Wright quotes that compromised what he seemed to stand for in the world, it seemed to me very obvious the, the easiest defense that at the time Senator Obama had about sitting in church and hearing this stuff was that he wasn't in church. That would have been the easiest answer. But it was political suicide as an American Christian to say, I don't go to church. So instead, he had to come up with, wound up being an incredible speech, he had to come up with an explanation of American black identity, American Christian identity, and his own place in this story in order to justify it. And I'm curious, like, watching these Jewish American presidential candidates having to do kind of the same thing, which is to publicly talk about their Jewishness, because if either of them basically said, I've spent my whole life not really caring about my Jewishness, that would be in some ways invalidating for the people who are driving their base. So Mayor Bloomberg has to fly to Florida and give his Jewish speech, you know, with all these coded references. He has a Jewish commercial. Senator Sanders has to start talking about his parents as immigrants and refugees in order to marshal a certain legitimacy in the American story. Neither of them talks about religion ever. Yeah, it's a cultural identity entirely, which is so different from the example you just mentioned about Obama. Obama did take it in a religious sort of direction, which is what his base needed and wanted from him, which is then an interesting mirror to the American Jewish community. If religion is not what the base needs or wants from their candidates, what are they looking for? I wonder whether there's a bigger story also at play here as it relates to Jews in this American democratic story. Aaron, you alluded before to the analogy to Israel. I think there may be a different story playing out here as well, which is you have two projects that are both at the intersection of Jewish and democratic. Classically, Israel talks about itself as a Jewish and democratic state, but the American project is also in some ways a Jewish and democratic state, uh, has been for American Jews. But the difference is that Israelis think of democracy as a governance system. When democracy is talked about as a set of values, Israelis actually tend to resist those values. They accept, in fact, they like a governance system as a democracy, but values sound like they are a challenge to Israeli Judaism. So if I have to choose between Jewish values and democratic values, I'm going to choose authenticity. Whereas for American Jews, maybe it's because we've been in a democracy for so long, or some would call a democracy for so long. Democracy is a set of values more than we talk about democracy as as a governance system. And what's incredible is to watch right-wing Jews and left-wing Jews basically curating a different set of key values of what they consider to be essential to democracy. Is democracy about individual rights or is democracy about human rights? And that, in some ways, is basically irreconcilable between right and left because once you've domesticated democratic values to actually shape your Jewishness, then it's no surprise that you almost have like a kind of domestic civil war between different Jews with different expressions of Jewish identity. We've become so thoroughly Americanized that we've internalized democracy into our value systems. How do you imagine bridging the divide in a Jewish community between these two different stories when we've done so well here that we've basically remade our Judaism in an American image? 
I think it's a, a marker of our integration, as you say, because that bifurcation of values is identical in the wider American community. This is not at all a specifically Jewish problem. In terms of how to bridge it within the Jewish community, I do think there is room to return to text study to have these discussions because that is really the only you know common denominator that we can find at this point. I wonder if actually reconciling it is the is the right purpose for us to be driving toward, you know, the part of the, the mythology of the um, the realization of Israel as a full country was the existence of Israeli Jewish mechanics and Jewish sex workers and Jewish politicians and Jewish criminals. Maybe the maturation of the American Jewish community is the fully coherent existence of American Jewish Republicans and American Jewish libertarians and American Jewish socialists and Democrats and so on. Even if it results in the inability to talk about some collective American Jewish democratic project. I think it makes that undertaking more complicated and nuanced. But I think imagining that there's going to be a monolithic American Jewish ideology may be getting in the way of our ability to get there. Today we're reading two texts together. Uh, one is a Mishnah from Baba Batra. Mishnah is a rabbinic text from the 3rd century, really the first book of rabbinic law, but more like a study book of law than a book of law itself, in which the Mishnah talks about the responsibilities of the members of a town, and in particular, the rights of the members of the town, what we call the Anshe Ha'ir, the people of the city, to compel someone in the town to contribute to the building of a gatehouse and a door for the courtyard. Then the Mishnah goes on to ask a second question, which is, how long does a person need to be in the town in order to be considered a part of that town? In other words, the Mishnah is asking two different questions. What are the obligations of citizenship, and what are the criteria for citizenship? And we're also reading a short piece by Michael Walzer, a political philosopher at Princeton, on citizenship, pluralism, and political action, who also takes for granted the idea that we can't really talk about citizenship until we talk about membership. Citizenship emanates from belonging within the context of a society. And Walter goes on to offer a critique of what he describes as a kind of political activism that is deterritorialized. Right? I care about the world, and it, it inhibits my ability to think about what's local. So let's start by exploring this question of the relationship between being rooted, being in a particular place, and the set of obligations or responsibilities that come with it. And, and maybe, Aaron, we'll start with you. How do you hear this whole conversation about citizenship and obligation and responsibilities in the American context? What sounds consistent with the American conversation about citizenship rights and obligations and what sounds to you dissonant? Look, I think there's an aspirational feature of American democracy that's entirely consonant with the mission of Baba Batra and with Walter that goes back to de Tocqueville about the unique quality of American civil society in which groups of people self-organize to advocate for their own interests. That happens necessarily first at a local level. And it's the competition and collaboration among those groups of self-interested people that form the vibrancy of American democracy. 
I say that word aspirational very intentionally because I think we've seen an erosion of that. You know, that goes back to um, bowling alone and other observations about the breakdown of local community affiliation, membership organizations and institutions that goes back half a century now. So I think there's a challenge at the heart of this. So you would suggest that part of the problem is actually social or sociological in nature by virtue of the fact that people don't live or belong to the same type of small groups. They don't necessarily bond together in the way that makes them responsible for one another and build that kind of structure of civic obligation. I think that's right. And and like now that I'm I'm thinking about it, I think that there are, I mean, it'd be very interesting to unpack what are the contributing factors, right? So one is the things that Putnam talked about, the breakdown of affiliations and local like community associations. I think another is the growth of, as Walter talks about, an interest in global citizenship and the capacity to understand what's happening globally and a desire to engage with it, even though that expressive action is very often at a remove, abstracted, not deeply grounded. And I think another is the relative affluence of the class of people, you know, the, the middle class, the bourgeoisie, who don't need it as much, right? Like the rise of economic success for the middle class in the middle, late 20th century meant that people didn't need to organize collectively as much in order to achieve economic well-being. And so they retreated to things that maybe felt more expressive and less self-interest driven. The other side of this, though, is the flip side of obligation is a discourse of rights. So the Mishnah seems interested primarily in, in order to be a legitimate citizen of good standing in this place, you have to contribute to the security of the well-being. And what's kind of invisible in the Mishnah is what rights you get in return. They're taken for granted, right? If you live in a secure community, you have effectively the right to be secure. Your own self-interest is preserved. But it feels to me, and this is just a, feels an anecdotal observation, it feels to me that the Jewish communal conversation about America is much more interested in rights or self-interest. How are our values being played out in public than it is in a conversation on what are our obligations either to other Americans or to the bigger civic project of America? Do you identify with that? And where do you think that came from? If I may pivot a little bit, one of the things that really came out to me while reading this Mishnah, the implication really of the Mishnah is such that what bonds a community, what makes a community cohesive is not actually values, is not a shared market or a shared ideology, but rather a shared concern, right? A concern for security, which is sort of a conservative read on this. But that was something that I was thinking about while reading this. They're building a gate. They're building doors, walls, right? That does kind of align with the communities that are most interested in rights and preserving their self-interest. That is a very, I think, strong parallel. I wonder also if it's not particularly a Jewish phenomenon, the thing that you're observing, right? The orientation toward rights and group rights and group claims and identity-based interests feels like that's pervasive across the society. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm going back and like thinking about this, the question of whether economic success and the sense that I don't need as much individualizes my calculus about what obligations am I willing to take on in order to secure what additional rights. If I've already got plenty of stuff, I live in a secure country, I've got a Xbox, I have plenty of food, I'm not food insecure, why would I voluntarily embrace additional obligations to secure abstract rights that I seem to not necessarily need? I think your point about affluence conjuring this 
social complacency is very strong and very true. I see this across the Jewish community. You know, maybe it has to do, as you both are suggesting, with change in American social class, especially by American Jews. Aaron, you and I both share a kind of skepticism about nostalgia for a version of this that was better. I think we both come from the Pinker School that it's better now than it ever was, uh, even though some versions of the imagined past seem better than now. But I, I am taken by the demise of a certain set of American institutions in which Jews played a much more significant role. Uh, the military is a big one, uh, the way in which American participation in the military shaped American belonging and American participation in public culture. And I know that a big part of your work is actually trying to build American Jewish commitments to civic life. So where do you see potential to, quote unquote, rebuild some elements of that that might change? change the calculus a little bit about the sense to which we see ourselves as entitled to a certain set of rights, as opposed to committed to something of a larger enterprise. I think that the narrative that we're trying to advance is to remind, in a way, the American Jewish community that the vibrancy of American Jewish life in the 21st century is enabled by the container that pluralistic American democracy provides, and that without our taking on the obligations that are apparent in the in the Mishnah, we can't count on that container being a available for the robust kind of American Jewish civil society that we've created here. How we get there, how we get people to take on that responsibility and see that connection, I think that's part of the project, because I'm not sure. But let's be granular. You all commissioned a study on American Jewish civic engagement, and there are markers of things that American Jews do in high numbers and things that are in low numbers. So first of all, what are the big things that American Jews do more than others, and where are the places to grow? And are all of these types of obligations that American American Jews might take on to be part of building the society, are they all equal? I'll focus less on the particulars because across the board, and we, we surveyed people about voting, about donating to campaigns, about donating to local social impact organizations, contacting elected officials, and across the board, American Jews participate in traditional civic engagement markers at higher levels than the general population. What's intriguing, and I think the core question that emerged for us is American Jews' discomfort with attributing their higher level levels of participation to their Jewishness. They answer the question quite clearly, yes, my Judaism informs my civic engagement, but, and this is like so intriguing, I would engage civically the same way even if I wasn't Jewish. There's a discomfort or a disconnect with the rooting of their universalistic, pluralistic civic engagement in the particular experience of Jewishness. I find that so surprising. They don't American Jews don't feel somewhat inspired or galvanized by Jewish history to engage? Yes. And this is like an internal contradiction, right? In, in their own self-reporting, they claim that they would have the same commitment to civic engagement even if they weren't Jewish. So yes, their particular Jewish identity and experience and encounter with the wisdom tradition informs their values, but they believe that those values would be the same even if they weren't Jewish. I think we need to do a study on American Jewish self-awareness next. <laughs> I, well, there's something you said, Avital, which I think is very telling, which is maybe that American Jews are actually calling on their own historical experience as outsiders, as refugees, as immigrants, etc., as motivating your participation in America. But that is a particular expression of a universal experience. In essence, okay, I came as an immigrant to this country, but a lot of other people did too. And so the fact that like I have a Jewish version of an American story might not actually be that strong of a Jewish argument. In other words, the story of being an immigrant may be more powerful than Mishnah Baba Batra in guiding that I actually have religiously significant moral obligations to participate in this. It's more like a kind of payback. 
I may be skeptical here because I am a first-generation American. My parents came as Soviet Jewish refugees. But we can't really compare the experiences or inherited memory, trauma, whatever it is, of American Jews with all other Americans, right? It was that certainly some groups of American Jews had very particular stories. You know, children of Holocaust survivors will tend to mention their their pasts, right? And talking right. about I'm their not, identities. Yeah, I'm not trying to homogenize those experiences, but I am suggesting that it's very different when you talk about anchoring your obligations in religion or in covenant or in pieces of our tradition that are so particularistic that you would then say, apropos Aaron's survey, the more thickly Jewish I am, the more my obligations to America emerge, which is really different than having a family narrative, a family story, which might suggest that, like, of course, I have a certain set of obligations to this country, a certain measure of gratitude, but that kind of can wear off over time past third, fourth, and fifth generation. You know, and just one example is, this is, I think, the problematic behind the way that Senator Sanders uses his own family story, which is he tells a Jewish story that actually sounds like an American immigrant story. And I think he does so because it appeals to the very multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalition that he wants to build in America, but not because he's trying he, – he's not a – you know, at the risk of being reductive, he's not really a Baba Batra Jew. He's not saying because of our Jewishness, we have this set of obligations. It's more like because our Jewishness is connected to a particular historical story. And in fact, what you're saying is that he's leading with the universal experience and just indicating that it has a particular flavor, but it's not distinct in any particular way from the Irish American experience or the Italian American experience or or whatever. Which is a mistake. You know, Amos Oz... I think used to say that the local is universal. You know, his stories of the kibbutz were so successful and so resonant for readers, even though they were very Israeli, but everyone could relate to the small town politics. What's embedded in some of this is that a lot of the questions that we're talking about, which started around American democracy, are also really critical questions for Jewish education, which is to say, does the study of Jewish texts, does a discourse of Jewish obligation, does prayer, spirituality actually invest us in the American civil and democratic project. I think part of the data that you surfaced from the survey is it doesn't really, or at least it hasn't yet. Right? I agree. I don't think it has. And I'll tell you, even in, I think, more right-wing Orthodox communities, I don't think it's prayer or Jewish religion or spirituality that inspires most yeshiva graduates to consider civic engagement. I think a lot of it is, you know, what we were alluding to earlier is a sort of fatalistic approach to life as an other, life as a minority. I need to be involved and engaged. I need to prevent X candidate from becoming the president lest we become persecuted again. Which is a particularistic story, but it also can, it can bleed pretty quickly into a self-interested story. Absolutely. I think the Muslim community would also. So let me ask a different question, which is Walter has a pretty pointed critique of what we might call progressive values when he says, Quote, how is it possible or is it possible to promote what we've come to think of as global justice, universal human rights, ecological sanity, and at the same time sustain a vibrant local political culture, Republican activism, participatory democracy? He's using Republican lowercase, but I think he's teasing a little bit that some of the things that you would have to do to build a strong American society require being local and being really political in terms of the kind of short-term goals, powerful organizing tools, et cetera. And that seems to kind of run at odds with what seems like a progressive agenda, which is more cosmopolitan in nature, more global in its orientation. How do you square that circle, Aaron? Especially because I know you've worked
work in the space of international human rights and global development. I think that there's an appeal, again, I go back to the abstraction of symbolic and expressive philanthropy, meaning love of humanity, right, in the original Greek, because it, it is simple and clean. It's very hard to be opposed to the human rights of people in a far-off land. There's no constituency against that. And it doesn't involve the complicated give and take that local political work does. And I think that the appeal, therefore, is its its cleanliness and its simplicity. I think Walter's onto something by saying that our resistance to the grotty, dirty, local political work is a real liability. Yeah, there's a great essay by Courtney Martin called The Reductive Seduction of Other People's Problems. And she talks about the appeal that the people in the West have to problems in other parts of the world, which from far away seem very technically solvable. And she talks about like a pile of patent applications for sub-Saharan African water problems. Whereas if you said to the same person, why don't you focus on improving the math scores of the public school down the street, they would say, oh my God, that's impossible. Because the closer you are to the problem, you actually recognize how complex these things are. But that is essentially this kind of argument for a different type of civically oriented social responsibility, which is think locally about how you can participate with a set of obligations that you actually have agency to address. It's it's not sexy, right? It, it, this language of universal human rights sounds much more compelling in terms of like even a messianic vision for the world. It's funny you say this because it's something I actually noticed in the Russian Jewish community. I hear a lot of post-Soviet immigrants bemoaning the loss of democracy in Russia under Putin. But when you, you want to talk about democracy here, are you being civically engaged here? There's like, no, I'm not interested. So it, it's very true. And we see this across the board. I wonder if there's actually two phenomena pulling in, in different directions, one of which gives me some hope, which is the kind of growing emergence of things like Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the Tea Party, right, as exemplars of Alinsky-like local community-based hard work of collectivized self-interest. And that's, it feels like a positive phenomenon. On the other hand, I think the rise of social media, the immediate gratification that's provided by things like Amazon, where I don't have to make the compromises that come from delayed gratification. I can find the echo chamber to be with people who just sound like me, niche news sources, um, things like that feels like it's pulling in the other direction. So I want to ask one last question because it bridges from your last comment, Aaron, which is I'm dispositionally not a big polarization person. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like living in a partisan culture. But Walzer indicates that one of the ways that we belong as citizens is through a vibrant public debate, that it's not just that I have a certain obligation, set of obligations, but that I argue about those obligations. So in that spirit, is there a way to think about our polarized political culture as potentially serving the project of American democracy and even participating in that public debate as being a kind of civic activity? Absolutely. And I think actually to go back to the beginning of this conversation, I feel like it's a, a unique opportunity for Jewish discourse to be a value add, right? We canonized argument as the ground upon which we made meaning. You know, we spent 400 years building our canonical text around real public policy issues, right? Issues where there were huge degrees of concern and the stakes were incredibly high. So to the extent that we can lean into that tradition of debate and discourse around meaning making, I think there's service for both the Jewish community and the American community. I would just want to caution us to keep in mind that debate is great. And I think we all agree on that. We're here sitting discussing. 
in our thousands of year old tradition. But Walter also talks about the need for insurgency at home, an insurgency that then is kind of internationalized and builds connections with other insurgencies in other countries. And the thing that he neglects to really talk about is the potential dangerous divisiveness that such a um, such movements do tend to create. So I am all for debate, but I do begin to wonder what are our limits? At what point do we say enough because this can become dangerous? Yeah, I'm really conscious of those dangers and scared of them. And I, I suppose the threshold we sit at is can we advance a vision for pluralism, which Walter indicates, which our institute cares a lot about. That's not about banality. It's not about flattening difference. It's not about silly civility, but it's actually in service of the very type of public culture in which this kind of vibrant debate is in a tool of strengthening democracy and civic culture as opposed to, to undermining it. Thank you for listening to our show this week, and special thanks to our guests, Aaron Dorfman and Avital Chizik Goldschmidt. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. It was produced and edited this week by David Svi Kalman, and our managing producer is Dan Friedman. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.